I don't think that you can push that back on the tenant unless yeah. the tenant's showing signs of gross negligence, like leaving windows open or didn't pay their utility bill. The, the, there's no, yeah, we have to we have to assume that they're doing that. And unfortunately, as an owner myself, like that's just some of the stuff that sucks with property <laughs> management or with with real estate investment ownership. Uh, you know, stock market it has its you know major crashes and and it spikes up, and you see that. This is just kind of the you know, the pullback in the, in the real estate market is just, you know, that added cost of sometimes these extreme weather conditions are hard, you know. So unless there's evidence of gross negligence on the on the tenant's part, I don't think there's anything you can really do. And just that's unfortunately part of the cost of doing business. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Colin Dalvin from Atlas Property Management. Today, we're talking about out-of-state real estate investing with property management, specifically that property management piece. How do you find them? How do you vet them? How do you work with them? How do you manage them? Because you have to manage your property managers and all those big things. You know, really, the one of my big points that I try to make to folks is I beg you not to manage your own rentals if you're a busy professional. Hire a property manager, get somebody in place to handle that day-to-day for you. That way you can focus on your other activities. You can focus on growing your rental portfolio if that's something you want to do. You can focus on your day job if that's what you want to do. You can focus on living your life. You know, we don't get in this business as real estate investors to become property managers. We become real estate investors to enjoy cash flow, to grow our wealth passively, to live the life we want to live. And you know, I don't think you want to be a property manager. I know I don't want to be a property manager. So we need to work with property managers to run our business so that we can live our life off to the side and enjoy that passive cash flow. It's all about passive so that we can do the things that we want to do. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy apartment buildings with passive investors and split the return. At our scale, we have to use property management. I don't buy single families, but if I did, you better believe I would be using property management, putting them in place and not managing those properties myself. If you do enjoy the show, I ask you to take a quick second, go to the Apple Podcasts app, leave us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind, it's much appreciated. That helps improve our ranking in the Apple ecosystem. That helps other people find out about the show and helps us make the tent bigger here and bring the story of passive income through real estate to more busy professionals out there. And that's what we're here to do. Once again, our guest is Colin Douthit from Atlas Property Management. They also own a company called Atlas Construction, which they started to help their clients and get more into the construction side of property management and property ownership. Without any further ado, here we go with Colin. Colin, thank you for joining us today. So glad to be here, Taylor. Thanks for having me. You have so much really cool experience and you've done so many amazing things. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and we're going to dive into topic we're going to discuss today? Yeah. Uh, so when I was, you know, growing up, it was go to college, get a degree, be a professional. So I took that route. Uh, I ended up with two undergrad engineering degrees and then a master's in engineering, got my PE license. I went on, did the business professional thing. You know, I was working in an office, 
you know, there's a subcontractor, a general contractor, project manager, estimator. Somewhere along the way, started spending some time uh, trying to learn stuff outside of my field, started reading books, got into the gateway drug for real estate investing as, uh, as uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Of course. So, yeah, of course, right? And so really started running with it there. Spent, you know, about a year reading audiobooks, podcasts, whatever I could do in my spare time when I was driving and decided to uh, buy my first investment, bought a seven unit multifamily in the small town that I live in outside of Kansas City. And right around that time, I uh, got fired from my job. Ouch. Apparently not the best of employees, uh, which is fine. I had, had that entrepreneurial bug anyway, especially after uh, really getting into real estate investing. I was like, this is what I want to do. So started to build my portfolio with some savings that I had. Worked with uh, some other partners, built up my own portfolio. Uh, we got up to, you know, 60, 70 doors. Decided this is a lot of work self-managing everything, even though I wasn't working. I was just kind of like stay-at-home dad plus the real estate guy. And it's like, you know what? I should probably look into starting a property management company. Looked in acquiring one, actually. Saw, you know, how they operate. The acquisition fell through. Uh, but I was like, well, I'm just going to start my own. So I did everything I needed to do to get legal, started my own company. And as of today, where we have 800 doors under management. That's awesome. That's great. And, you know, today what we're going to talk about, this is, this is not going to be a conversation for the folks out there who think they want to start their own property management company. That's not what this podcast is about. From my angle and our listeners' angle, really what we want to do, we're all about the passive income and passive wealth generation. One of my big, I don't know, pet peeves, that's the wrong word, but one of my big uh, principles is not even the right word, ideas, concepts, whatever, is that buying a property, any property, and self-managing it is just not the way to go for busy professional real estate investors who really are just after mailbox money and another way to you know provide for the retirement and, and mm-hmm. generate wealth. That's really what I want to get into today. Lessons you've learned on the, along the way in building that property management company, what owners do wrong when they're finding a property manager, you know, let's dig into all of those topics. So are there any right. tough lessons that come to mind that you've learned as a property manager? Uh, big question. I've learned, big question. Yeah. Tough lessons. You never... If you have a decent property management company that you're working with, you very rarely manage the property as well as they do. I can even tell you that as we systematized our company, the properties that I was self-managing started performing better. Our rents went up, our occupancy stayed there. You know, so it was really uh, just those systems and learning how much money that I was leaving on the table or how much money I see other investors leaving on the table. That's kind of the lesson that I've learned from this property management space. And now that I am a PM is that there's money being left on the table every month through vacancies that are there too long, through rents that are under market rent, you know, not controlling maintenance costs or some other expenditures. And especially now, I mean, when this goes live and we were going to be hopefully coming toward the tail end of COVID, but one of the things Mm -hmm. I've observed in a lot of forums is folks who self-manage have had a harder time navigating the various eviction moratoriums out there. Whereas, you know, we have professional property management for my properties and attorneys and all those great things that can figure out what these regulations mean and help us navigate, you know, and follow the laws. Whereas if you're on a couple of single families and are limited to that scale, it's difficult to know what to do and it's tough to have the margin to do it. 
Yeah. So that's one of the things, you know, that we're in that those weeds every day. And, you know, we are with a network of other property managers that are sharing resources back and forth. We've got great eviction attorneys that provide a ton of resources for us. So navigating the challenges of COVID, the evictions, some of the stuff that we're seeing locally, politically in Kansas City, protest groups and all that sort of stuff. That's it's been a whole nother can of worms to try to navigate. And yeah, we can, you know, navigate the eviction process pretty efficiently when we have all the tools at our disposal. And, you know, that was something that I learned the hard way doing my first eviction as a self-managing owner was, well, you screwed this step up. Okay. You got to do this. And you know, that I'm spending half a day running, you know, 30 minutes over. Um, like I said, I'm in a little bit of a rural area where I live, even though our company's here in Kansas City is, you know, okay, spend 30 minutes, drive up to the county seat, file the paperwork, you know, drive back and then go back to the court and then come back and then go back 14 days later. You know, so just burning a whole bunch of time that now that we have a good, you know, attorneys that we're working with, they handle all that stuff. And, you know, it is a touch more expensive on the eviction, but nothing gets missed and they've got great collections on the back end. So it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I harp on generally is, and I, this is for my own benefit too, is focusing on value rather than cost. Because if you're paying mm-hmm. an attorney, yeah, they cost money, but hopefully they're helping you navigate and they're providing that value that, you know, you're not the one having to figure this all out or make those half an hour long drives each direction for one property and all those big things. You're 100% right on that. I know when I was doing one of my own self evictions, you know, we had a little quick swearing in and then kind of got put on the stand. And with my engineering background and, you know, kind of going against the tenant, I was like, I'm going to bury them in paperwork because I have all my records. And I did. But now I don't have to do all that paperwork, <laughs> right? The attorney's handling all that. And then I got put on the stand this last fall or summer, and it was the same sort of thing with, okay, there's going to be a bunch of questions that I'm going to ask you as your attorney. And, you know, she's highlighted the leases of everything that I need to reference and all the questions that I'm going to have to answer. So it just, it went smoothly. And then I'm trying to get cross-examined by a tenant. You know, it was very cut and dry. It makes it, you know, as long as you're following the steps that they give you, it's hard to screw it up. Now, to me, getting put on the stand, even if, you know, I'm a hundred percent in the right and all those things, that just sounds like an absolute nightmare. I would so much rather have a property manager, you know, who's the one going and handling <laughs> all of that. And I'm just the guy who owns the LLC that owns the property. That's my. Mode. Yeah. No, that's it, it. Even though it was kind of handed to me on a silver platter, you know, you're still getting those jitters because you have to get sworn in and. I'm not an attorney. And then one of my other poor PMs, she got put on the stand and they had a pro bono attorney that didn't know all the stuff that had been going on in the backside. And she got had to get cross-examined by an actual attorney. She was on the stand for 30 minutes. Uh, this was just a couple months ago. So that was, I think, emotionally taxing for her. So yeah, you don't want to be on the stand. It's not much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the big problems when folks are you know, looking to buy their first uh, rental property, particularly out of state, is finding a property manager that, you know, they can trust is going to uh, provide the value for the cost of their services. I mean, it's not that cost is irrelevant. It's just that value is the you know critical factor of that. And people mm-hmm. don't want to give up that percentage of their gross rents. And are they just going to keep turning over the tenants and really hitting me on management mm-hmm. fees? What are your thoughts about things that out-of-state investors should look for in a property management company? So we work almost exclusively with out-of-state investors. So I get interviewed a lot by out-of-state investors. 
So, you know, having those discussions with them, I, I kind of figure out what they're looking for sometimes, right? They want to know, can I trust you? Sometimes they want referrals. How do your processes operate? How can I stay in the know and kind of be up to date on what's going on in my property? So, you know, having a PM that will work with you to give you answers to those questions that make you feel comfortable is going to be really important in terms of communication. In terms of the vetting process, we get vetted quite frequently. And, you know, I'm going to tell them, you know, go check out what people are saying about them on bigger pockets. Like that's, that's really an easy way to go about it. Look at bigger pockets, see who other people are referring, look for horror stories. Right. There's some threads in bigger pockets with local PMs that are just like horror stories with like a couple of the same firms and they just kind of get referrals because they've got scale. But that doesn't always mean that they're the best, you know, and then also ask for referrals from the property manager for owners that have a similar size property to what they are looking to acquire or already have. Yeah, I mean, as a an out-of-state investor myself, granted, you know, in apartment complexes, it's tough to, you know, it's tough to hand over some of that control. Now, we do yeah. asset management, you know, we stay in touch with our, our property managers quite a bit. But, you know, on the, the smaller scale, somebody has got, you know, is looking to buy like a handful of single family rentals. You know, if they're, if they're asking for a, a call with you on a weekly basis, like we have with our apartment complex managers, I don't know. Is that really in the cards? Is that reasonable? What is a reasonable expectation for someone to have to keep in touch with you and make sure, you know, mm-hmm. they're asset managing their portfolio adequately? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a couple different things on that. We do have investors that we have weekly calls with, but you're right. They are syndicators. They are ones that have multi six figure construction projects going on that we're also doing the construction on, right? And they're total repositions of large multifamilies. And, you know, they're taking them from, you know, really rough properties. We're spending a lot of money on them, releasing them up, trying to just do a whole culture change out there. So we have weekly, you know, calls with that. And, you know, the way I'm going to think about it is going to be very, very simple. Anybody that's also a professional out there will understand billable time, whether you're accountants, attorneys, engineers, whatever it is. So, Our property managers, they have a labor cost, then they have a marked up labor rate once we have to pay taxes, insurance, retirement, all that sort of stuff. So they're going to cost us a minimum dollar per hour. Then we need to make a margin on them. Now, we're not billing them out hourly. So if you are managing a one single family home from somebody, let's say it's $1,000 a month and we're taking 9% of that, that's $90 a month. Okay. So what's my PM's billable rate, right? If it's $45 $45 an hour for easy math, then, you know, the two hours that they can spend on that one property. But realistically, it needs to be higher than that. So we have, you know, an hour that we could devote to one single family, you know, per month, essentially. Now, where that hour gets spent, is that going to be sucked up with dealing with the tenant, possibly dealing with maintenance issues, whatever, that having a weekly call for somebody that just has a few single families isn't the most effective use of their time. You know, at the end of the day, you are hiring a professional company, if they are professionals, to do what they do best, which is manage your properties. You know, do you call your accountant for daily updates uh, and they're handling more money? How often do you call your 401k guy or your IRA? How, much, how often are you calling them to get regular updates? And they may be dealing with significantly more money than we're dealing with. If you've got, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or more in your retirement fund and you just let them do their thing. Oh, well, those are the professionals. But every other week you're calling your PM for your hundred thousand dollar house, you know, 
are we stepping over dollars to pick up pennies type situation? (laughs) And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, what's the difference between value and cost? And some people do get hung up on that, right? Well, this guy, he's charging me 8% and you're at 9%. Okay. I can appreciate that. How much difference does 1% make on whatever your rent is? $1,000 for easy math. That's $10. Is that going to charge you a $75 show up fee for a maintenance? We don't charge that. So right there, you know, there just went that apparent cost savings, but they're going to make it up on the backside. So as we're talking, well, well, not as we're talking, uh, a little bit ago, there was a major ice storm in Texas, and that caused a lot of you know property damage across mm-hmm. the state, really. And and there are a lot of certainly rental properties that have have had frozen pipes and and mm-hmm. all of those issues and damage, significant damage to the properties as a result of the weather. If that happened in, in your area, you know, and you're getting a thousand calls, you know, from all of your property owners, I'm sure. And they're asking, Hey, what's going on with my properties? Now this didn't happen in Kansas city to my knowledge, but. Oh no, it happened. Oh, it did. Okay. Oh yeah. We had negative 15 degree actual temperatures. We had burst pipes everywhere. Everybody did. So how do you, how do you handle that huge influx and making sure that all of these things are getting addressed, you know, in order and, and somebody's mm-hmm. you know, bills property is not falling out of the, the priority or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first thing is uh, assessing what vacants we have. You know, we had some warning that this was coming. So we have a, a team and our team has their respective, you know, goals and responsibilities. So we have a PM that's responsible for 225 doors. We have two maintenance coordinators and they're assigned to some respective PMs and, and hey, these properties are vacant. Let's make sure the heat's on. Let's make sure it's set. Let's double check all these things, right? Even with all those proactive steps, occupied units having burst pipes left and right, frozen. I mean, we spent a whole week last week just thawing out pipes and, you know, fixing broken pipes. It, it was happened to everybody. I mean, my in-laws, they built a new house in 2019. They had a burst pipe. Wow. And yeah, really, really nice house. So, I mean, everybody was fighting it across, you know, we were, it was just so cold for so long. And we had 14 or more days where it didn't get above freezing. Most of those days was in the teens and single digits. So, so it's a matter of, you know, having those, those teams in place and, you know, project management basically to make sure, figure mm-hmm. out who's got a problem and then go. Yeah. Chase so them all try down. to proactively prevent those from happening. And then once they do happen, because it's inevitable, uh, that we are responding quickly, right? We're, working hand in hand with our HVAC guys to make sure they're getting out there replacing anything that's brust, that's busted and not heating properly. You know, our maintenance staff is armed with heaters and whatever they need to start going underneath these crawl spaces, thawing stuff out, you know, pecs and shark bites like crazy just to, to get everything up and running again. You know, we sent out proactively sent out an email, you know, through our portal and to all the tenants and said, Hey, this weather's coming. It's going to be long. It's going to be cold. Set your faucets to drip, you know, give them a trickle so your pipes don't freeze. Whether they choose to obey that or not is up to them. But we're trying to provide all the opportunities to prevent those things from happening. Now, that's an interesting thing that the pipe, the, the dripping faucet, that does work to a certain extent. A pipe can still freeze if it is flowing, if it's cold enough. And it's, if it's if it's cold enough. Yeah, that's 100 percent right. You know, for Texas versus Kansas City is going to be a difference in, in how the pipes are ran. Through the buildings, you know, generally ours are shooting for interior walls and stuff like that. So that, you know, in theory, what's the coldest that pipe's going to get? It's going to be below freezing. But if you've got 50 degree water 
running through it coming from underground that it's even if it's just the cold water that's running it's going to keep the pipe at above freezing that's that's the theory so you mentioned bigger pockets earlier and just this topic brings to mind a thread that was posted but didn't have any replies when i looked at it i had to think about it i didn't have an answer for it but Somebody was asking, you know, this this pipe burst. I asked the tenant to keep the faucet dripping. They said they did, but who knows if it, whether they did or not. How? And they, this person was asking, okay, can I build a tenant for that, or is that cost on me? I don't think there's any way to demonstrate whether they did or did not drip the faucet. But you know, assuming they did, is I to my mind, I don't think that's a that should be a cost on the tenant. But I have to really think about it. How would you handle that situation? I don't think that you can push that back on the tenant unless yeah. the tenant's showing signs of gross negligence, like leaving windows open or didn't pay their utility bill. That the, there's no, you know, we have to we have to assume that they're doing that. And unfortunately, as an owner myself, like that's just some of the stuff that sucks with property <laughs> management or with, with real estate investment ownership, uh, you know, stock market, it has its, you know, major crashes and, and then spikes up and you see that this is just kind of the, you know, the pullback in the, in the real estate market is just, you know, that added cost of sometimes these extreme weather conditions are hard, you know? So unless there's evidence of gross negligence on the, on the tenants part, I don't think there's anything you can really do. And just, that's, Unfortunately, part of the cost of doing business sometimes. Hey, I think that's a, that's a certainly a fair answer. Now we talked about working with a property manager out of state and finding mm-hmm. a property manager out of state, but you know, that's one piece of it. The other piece is the actual deal and where mm-hmm. out of state investors uh, are finding deals lately. What do you see? Is it, are they having success on the MLS in that area? Is it all off market? I think there are some turnkey providers doing business there as well that I've seen. Where are you seeing, you know, deal flow, successful cash flowing deal flow coming from? A lot of the success we're seeing is people aligning with buyer's agents and the buyer's agents combing MLS, working their network of pocket listings and working their own systems to increase their own listings so that they have those opportunities. The MLS does have some. Each property is going to perform differently on the MLS. Typically, they're for what my investors are looking for, sometimes they're overpriced. That doesn't mean that they're not going to be a good cash flowing asset for somebody that's wanting a certain cap rate or a certain cash flow. You know, I've seen some people that are doing some 1031s and they've got you know, 100% equity in that deal. And they're like, I just need to park the money and this will be just fine. This is a good ROI. Great. You know, we'll manage it for you. We support you in that. It just really depends on on each individual investor. People that are looking for single families, uh, they are seeing some MLS success in certain neighborhoods. And that's kind of where we, with our vertical integration, come into play. Oh, you want to buy that house for 50K? Put 25 into it. It'll rent for 950 to 1,000. It's going to have an ARV of 110. Great. You know, you can burr it all day. Nice. Yeah, beating mm-hmm. the the 1% rule. Yeah. Well there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are finding single-family homes, and some people are buying them from flippers, and they're buying them for 120, 130, and in the right neighborhood, we're renting them for 14. $1,500. So still beating the 1% rule, just a higher class asset at that point. Nice. Nice. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Colin, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Born ready. Let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Education, including college and post-college education. Anything that would fall under the heading of education. 
Okay. So, what was the best investment yes. other than my education? Other than other things. Strategic partnerships with people to help grow my business, whether that's within the business or outside the business, those you know, having the right people, surrounding myself with the right people has been the, the best investment and allowed me to have a lot of success. Nice. Well, before we hit record, one of your business partners poked his head in here and said hi. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> they are there. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Hmm. I bought a package of 16 single family homes with a lot of deferred maintenance and I did not structure the debt favorably, nor did I, uh, you know, have a good understanding of how this was all going to work. This was really, really early on in my investing career. And so without structuring a construction loan and not shopping the debt around, I got poor debt terms with no construction and no willingness to give us any construction money. And it was, uh, it was a rough one. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Did you end up getting out of the deal made whole? Did you lose money on a deal? When, we how did that have out? not lost money. Actually, last week after shopping it for a while, uh, we were able to get a refinance and get a large construction loan. And now I'm going to have my guys start doing rehab, get the asset quality back up, get the occupancy back up. And in six months, it's going to be a different investment package. Okay. So you're going to save it. We are going to save it for now or possibly sell it to somebody that wants a bunch of rural single family homes. Hmm, interesting. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Margin is important, whether it's running a property management company or a construction company or having investment properties, you know, the, the margins, what you live on, you pay the bills with, uh, with everything before margin, but margins, uh, what the owners get to take home. So, yeah. You can pay all your employees and still have no money in your pocket, even though you've got a lot of money coming in because you don't have the margin. Gross big enough, but net, not net, quite big the enough. Net, the net is what you live on as an owner. <laughs> Great. Well, Colin, thank you for joining us today, bringing us these lessons about out-of-state investing, managing a property manager, finding a property manager, all those big things. And congratulations on your success so far. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to talk about investing in Kansas City or what have you, where can they find you? you can check us out on our website, www.atlas.rentals. Look me up on LinkedIn, Colin Douthit, or they can shoot me an email, colin at atlas.rentals. Great. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them to the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. Hope you have a great rest of the day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.